right, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be uh, out here. Um, good to get fresh air out here in Devon, as always. Um, well, let me pray, and uh, we'll jump into Romans 4. There's a lot uh, to cover, a lot to say uh, about this great chapter. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have written these words to us and for us for our spiritual benefit. God, these words, and there are many of them, uh, are not there just to fill our heads with knowledge, uh, to be puffed up, um, but they are there to humble our hearts, uh, to see what an amazing God you are, uh, what a gracious Savior we have, and what a joyous salvation is freely ours, not because of anything we've done, but because you have granted it to us as a precious gift. And so that's why we're here, to worship your name today. So I pray that all of us here, including myself, will forget about ourselves. We'll forget, at least for these moments, about the problems back home, at work, at school. And we'll be able to just be lost uh, in uh, the story of the gospel. And the story that we're living in. And how it affects everything we do. May you change us from the inside out. And even if we walk out of this chapel today uh, with even an extra ounce of hope added to our faith, may your spirit be at work. Uh, Lord, so uh, thank you for this day. Uh, it's truly a day you have made for us. Uh, as we see the sun shining brightly outside, we're reminded of the great love of God that's being poured over us even now. Despite what we feel about ourselves uh, despite any mistakes we've made, uh, Lord, that cause us to feel shame. Lord, you cover every last transgression, and the light of your love for us is abundant. So receive our worship and speak through this word to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going through this marathon journey through Romans, uh, and I hope you're not tired yet. Uh, we're only about a quarter of the way done. Uh, there's 16 chapters, so we're uh, slowly getting there. And uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it, uh, just soaking up these truths, being reminded of uh, the power of God for our justification. And it's amazing to be assured of your justification, salvation, and right standing before God because it's a priceless, valuable gift for our Christianity because if you apply it to your hearts correctly, they will guide us through some of the most difficult parts of our lives. And so today I'm going to guide us through mainly the second half of chapter 4, but I want to sum up uh, the first half of chapter 4 for us as well. So please just keep your Bibles open. We'll be delving in, going deeply into some of these verses and trying to extract as much truth out of it as we can. Uh, up until this point here, the Apostle Paul, uh, let me just set this up for us by saying he's writing these words, uh, these truths about the grace of God through Jesus and the nature of her faith, not as a teacher or an apologist. He's not just making statements for the sake of argument. He's writing these words pastorally. He's a pastor who's planted many churches uh, in urban settings, a pastor who cares for and loves his sheep deeply. And his agenda isn't to sound smart and clever, even though he is. He really, really genuinely cares that they understand and so the questions we should constantly be asking ourselves is this, are you right with God? 
Do you have a right relationship with him? Are you living with hope even when those hopes are challenged? Because Paul understood that real life giving hope only exists when it's living in a relationship with God. And these are the questions that are driving us as we preach because at the end of the day for us as we receive these teachings, we want to examine our lives. We want to be sure that we're assured of our salvation, our standing with God. And so this first half of chapter 4, Paul, he's using Old Testament examples to show them that these teachings, he's not making anything up. This idea that righteousness is credited to us by faith apart from the law is a teaching that always existed. It didn't just start when all of a sudden Paul started thinking and he needed some things to write and he needed to fill up these pages for us to read. It existed even as you go back to the very, very beginning of our story, of the story of redemption. And the two characters that Paul zooms in on in this chapter to prove his point are two figures that are at the forefront of Old Testament history. So for this New Testament church who just are, are, uh, have just recently encountered the, the resurrected Christ and uh, this New Testament teaching is very new, their minds, on their minds is still fresh the idea that they are to emulate and live out the very same faith that they saw taught in the example of Abraham and David. We see um, right in verse 3, if you look with me, it's the scripture says that Abraham believed God when he had no reason to, when it was difficult for him to do. And it was credited to him for no other reason than by faith, as righteousness. It was given to him. The gospel is being preached right in that passage there. And as you move on, we see one of the greatest kings and rulers who ever sat on the throne of Israel, King David, who was appointed by God to rule his people in righteousness and in integrity and truth. And for all of his efforts to do that, we see that he failed. He failed morally, he failed criminally, and he fell in ways where if it were you or I, the instinct would be to just walk away. But it was the very teaching of the gospel that existed, even in the period of the kings, that enabled David with confidence to say, as we see here in verse 5 and 6, that David also spoke, verse 6, of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he wrote these words in verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. We don't normally see phrases like this until we read about the work of Christ, but here, hundreds of years prior to even Jesus walking on the earth, he's saying, blessed are those whose sins are covered and the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Where do we see those words true? It's on the cross. It's in what Jesus has accomplished for us. And we see and we can understand from what Paul teaches here that these Old Testament figures, they were justified by faith. And it wasn't because of anything they did that they were saved or believed that their sins were forgiven. It was all by grace. And they believed that with all their hearts. How, I mean, how could David? He sinned in the worst way. But for him to get to a point where he was hiding and living in fear to confidently write that God no longer counts those sins against me was because he believed in the righteousness that he was able to have credited to him apart from what he was able to do or unable to do with regards to the law. This teaching seamlessly extends into the New Testament so we can believe with confidence that we'll see Abraham and David when we go to heaven one day. And so let's turn now uh, to the second half of this passage, this chapter here, where we see, and here's where I want to really, really 
um, get this teaching clear, that this isn't just knowledge that fills our minds, that everything that Paul's teaching here and everything that we see that Abraham gained right, from his realization of all that God is to him, that it was intensely personal. It affected his life. It was true to him when life turned to its worst, when he had every reason to fall prey to his despair and give up in his faith journey. So once again, Paul zooms in on Abraham. He is obsessed with Abraham. He's fascinated by him. I, I was joking. I said, if, if, if Paul had an iPhone, his wallpaper would be this big face of Abraham staring at him with the words, father of nations. I mean, he loves Abraham. I mean, he uses him. He, he zooms in on him. And he brings the point here as we go forward that what Abraham was able to do with regards to obeying God was all because of what he believed about God. It was personal. And so we'll look at today's passage for the rest of it in three parts. Number one, uh, what Abraham put his faith in, which is the object of his faith. Number two, what Abraham's faith teaches us, which is the nature of his faith. And number three, how to share in Abraham's faith. We'll see that there is the application of faith. The first one is very simple. What Abraham put his faith in, the object of his faith. And the answer to this is very obvious. Verse 13. It was the promises of God. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Put simply, Abraham trusted in God who he believed to be the promise maker and the promise keeper. And he fully trusted in every word that came out of his mouth, every promise he made. And specifically in this case, we know that this promise is very clear. It's a difficult one, a well-known promise that a child will be granted to Abraham and Sarah at the very old age. They would produce offspring that would make Abraham the heir of the world. And as it says in verse 18, the father of many nations. And so right from the get-go, the point I want to make here is that Christianity, what we believe, more than any other faith, is a promise-driven religion. It's a promise-driven religion. And we as Christians, by virtue of this, we are promise-driven people. No other faith operates like this. The story of the Bible is filled with promises. Everything that it unfolds is built on promises. Even back in Genesis 3, right after the curses were pronounced, as Abraham and as Adam and Eve fell into sin, dragging all of humanity with them, God promises that one day the offspring of the woman, Jesus, will one day crush the head of Satan and one day put an end to those very curses. And on and on, Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. Genesis 15, look at the heavens, number the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be, in verse chapter 17 of Genesis, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Over and over again, God's saying, Abraham, I promise you this. I promise you this. It may not look like this, but listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying to you. What I'm saying is going to happen. The story of the Bible and Christianity is an unfolding story of promises being fulfilled. And if we think about it, the nature of the promises that we read about God giving his people and what we need to trust, it's so different uh, than the kind of promises we tend to make or we tend to receive. Right? 
Uh, think about some of you who are parents, or think about your parents uh, as you were growing up. As good as uh, you, you all are as parents, and as good as the parents we've all had. So many of the promises that we make that are made to us, or made to us, they're given with conditions. So only if you do this, then I promise you this, right? So maybe some of you growing up heard something like, only if you do all your homework, uh, practice your piano for an hour and a half, practice your violin in addition to that for another two hours, and when you're all done, the sun's down, then I promise you, you can do whatever you want, okay? You can play uh, Nintendo 64, <laughs> old school, way, I'm going way back here, Sega, <laughs> I don't know if you know, even know what that is, right? Only if, maybe some of you have said this to your kids, only and only if, if and only if, you just please keep your mouth shut, don't say a word for the rest of this car ride, right? Five more minutes, and I promise you, three scoops of ice cream when you get home, right? Just think of it, I promise you. If you get a good score on your SATs, if you get into a good school, I promise you a nice set of wheels, okay? Whether or not that car is nice, you'll find out later. Um, but it promise you it will have an engine and a steering wheel, and you'll get to go where you want to go. So it's all built on, I mean, built on conditions, you know. But thank God it's not like this when it comes to our justification. Look at, if you really look at it, observe what's going on. In the story of the Bible, even before Abraham has a chance to prove himself as worthy, the promise comes first. The promise is the beginning of the story. And Paul explains this in verse 14, that if it weren't, if that were not the case, if it was only for the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then what reason do we have to have faith to begin with? He says at the end of verse 14, faith is null, meaning it means nothing, and the promise is void. They're both worthless. Okay? Now, if you promise your kids ice cream if they stay quiet in the car. That's fine. They need to learn good behavior. You, know? ice cream, you don't give them ice cream for nothing. Right? Just, just, that's fine. But when it comes to our faith, if it was based on the promise being fulfilled and true because somehow we kept the law well, we never stained ourselves with any of the corruption of the world, and we believed and obeyed everything perfectly, then what good is that promise? That's what Paul's saying here. And what good is your faith? If you have to earn it. This is, this is amazing. This is amazing news here. And, be, and Abraham basically became the heir of the world be, uh, through faith. In verse 16 it says, that's why it depends on faith. As he explains further, that the promise may rest on grace and guarantee to the offspring. And so as far as Abraham was concerned, the one who offered such grace was the one who he reasoned in his mind and believed to be good for every word he would ever give. And will get more into this as we go forward. We'll see why this was such a big deal. So second thing here, Abraham's faith, what it teaches us, the nature of his faith. And there's two things we want to look at. And the first one I think is very important for us. I think we can all apply this. The first thing that we see that the nature of Abraham's faith teaches us is that reality is oftentimes, most times, greater than how we feel or how things appear. Um, we can learn this from Abraham because that's how he lived his life. Verse 18 through 19. In hope he believed, believed against hope that he should become the father of nations. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. In Abraham's mind, we understand uh, his, his circumstance here, him and Sarah. He reasoned that he was as good as dead, and his body was as good as dead as far as being able to reproduce, uh, and the barrenness as well of Sarah's womb. And so as far as appearances and what the circumstances told them, it was a situation that had zero, very little to zero answers or solutions. So he had to bank his life on God's promise, which from verse 18 here quotes Genesis 15, which I referenced earlier, so shall your offspring be, multiple offspring. And so verse 18, 19 tells us he believed against hope. Appearances need to go out the window. My feelings about this situation, I need to ignore. For me, it's the promise. It's always the promise. And what we can, in, in addition to this, understand that faith, because it's opposed to feelings and experiences, is more than just a general optimism about life, which we tend to mistake faith to be. Oh, I just really just kind of believe that tomorrow is going to be better than today. I'll have a better season once this period of life ends, you know. A couple of days ago, I, I, I gave uh, some of the college students who were there a message about depression and anxiety for our, our college students. And uh, really making that point that to ignore some of these issues and problems of our lives is to our peril because we have to understand you know, that just optimism that things are going to get better once the semester ends or once uh, we get past through this difficult trial uh, rarely ever works because we can't trust ourselves. It's more than just look at the bright side. It's more than just try to be positive, have a positive attitude. It surely isn't just believe in yourself and you can accomplish anything. If anything at all, real faith begins when you stop believing what the, what the circumstances and the appearance and the feelings say. Real saving faith begins with a death to self-trust, to admit that we can do nothing on our own and to admit we're weak. True saving faith, friends, is distrusting ourselves and trusting in God with all our hearts. And the more weak we feel, the more faith we have because God's strength and ability is magnified in our weakness. Right. Uh, this, this winter, I feel like a lot of people have been sick. And uh, about a month ago, I was sick for about five days, uh, uh, stuck at home, uh, just battling this cold. And uh, nothing like being physically unable to move and some moments breathe to really... Uh, admit and come face to face with uh, how helpless you really are. You know, you could kind of turn into a baby. <laughs> you know, literally just curled up like a fetus under my uh, my blankets, and uh, just thinking the worst. It's like if I don't make it through this, uh, who's going to get my nice TV or <laughs> my nice couch and all this stuff and all things like that? You know, and um, it takes a big toll on you. But really, in, in that moment where you can do nothing. And it takes every ounce of your strength just to sit up. And thank God I got better. I mean, thank, thank God. God does really, um, yeah, anyway. It, it, nothing like being able to just, not being able to sit up or do anything uh, for yourself where you really, really come to understand, man, I, for all the time I put into exercise, working out, uh, eating healthy, right here, I'm, I'm at God's mercy and I have to cry out to him. God, please, <laughs> please. Um, and in that moment of humility, you realize when you stop trusting in yourself, that's when in those moments, instead of becoming self-absorbed, uh, 
our faith can grow, our faith can fly by, being able to call out to someone, call out to God instead of relying on yourself. How about you? How do you respond when you, when you try to believe in yourself, but it doesn't work? Uh, when you try to have a positive attitude about work, you know, just hopefully things will pick up, uh, things will get, the situation will get better uh, for yourself, for everybody uh, you work with. When you try to have a positive attitude about school, just trying to get through a very stressful uh, season of it. When you try to be positive about life, your family, maybe this is just, uh, just a difficult time where, where family members are being difficult. Maybe they'll just change on their own and so on and so forth. And you try to maintain that positive mindset, but it doesn't last very long. And when that happens, who do you turn to? Do you keep trusting in yourself? And I think that's what a lot of us do. It's just maybe I got to try harder. I got to set better goals. I got to come up with better plans to meet those goals. And if I don't, I just got to think of something else. I got to keep trying on my own because it's all up to me. I know uh, I tend to do that as well. Perhaps at those points where we see how unable we are and how little control we have, it's that moment we say, I'm going to put death to self-trust here and look to the word and the promises of God as we see was so evident and clear in the trials that Abraham and Sarah had to endure where there was no reason for them uh, to have confidence. They were over 100 years old. And it's here that we also see that faith in God's promise, the faith that Abraham exemplified is one that was reasonable and rational. And we'll... Um, Dwell, dwell on this a little bit here because when it comes to having faith, yes, it does mean we uh, ignore uh, some of the uh, appearances and feelings that run contrary to what we need to believe in, but that does not mean that faith is opposed to reason uh, and intelligence. You know, a lot of people who are opposed to Christianity on the news, social media, and I'm, I'm, which I'm on very often, they openly attack Christian, Christians for being mindless sheep who have no rational basis for believing in a divine being. They say that people, some out there, think that we need to uh, make up this being in our minds and imagination to compensate uh, for laziness uh, or insecurity uh, or failure. And a lot of people have a hard time seeing how faith in God can coexist with reason and intelligence. But Romans 4 tells us otherwise. And I would challenge them to read uh, what's taught us in the second half of Romans chapter 4. We see that the Apostle Paul never pits faith and reason against each other. In fact, Abraham's faith, as Paul describes, is one that is built on reason. Look with me from verses, verses 18 to 19. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He contemplated. Twice the word considered is used. The repetition meaning emphasis. That word meaning deep pondering, wrestling, reckoning. NIV, transla NIV translated, face the facts. That he considered his situation, he wrestled with it, he thought about it, and he came to the conclusion that he would not weaken in his faith that God was far greater than the problem. It wasn't a blind faith. And what resulted was verse 18. One of my favorite phrases here is that in hope he believed against hope. In hope he believed against hope. Meaning in hope, hope in God, 
hoping God's promises, he believed against hope, meaning he betrayed the hope in flesh. He, he turned away from hope in just common sense, common human sense, or what his eyes physically saw. In hope, he believed against hope, and he stood his ground. He trusted in God. And that's amazing. That's something I want to be able to say about myself, about our churches, that even in the most difficult times, even when everything's tested, that in hope, church, renewal, brothers and sisters, friends, we would believe. Believe in God because he is faithful and true. You know, in order for you to put your faith in somebody, you have to believe in a couple things about them, right? First, you have to believe that they're capable, they're able to do what they promise. And secondly, you have to believe that they're good, they're nice, right? They're willing to follow up on that promise and do what they promise to do, right? When you trust your, um, trust your friends, uh, your family, your kids, your spouse, it's like when, you, when they make a promise, it's like you, at the end of the day, it's like this person, yeah, they're, they're nice enough to do it, and they have the ability to do it, you know? Um, reminds me of a time years ago, um, I had computer issues, uh, an old PC, uh, before I, I um, came to the light, switched to Apple. Uh, but um, that thing needed fixing all the time, this old, uh, heavy Toshiba satellite that always, always uh, malfunctioned on me. And so, hypothetically, there, uh, I'll just, for the sake of uh, identity protection, there's two guys. Their names are Mitch and Rich. Okay? Uh, Mitch is a, a very nice guy. Uh, and always willing to help. And any time I needed help, they were willing to do it, but every time he touched my computer, it got worse. Okay? Blue screen kept coming up. Right? And I was like, oh, let me fix, let me fix, oh, I'll help you, I'll help you. That's, that's very nice. I'm like, uh, actually, uh, uh, not today, it's fine. You know? Really nice guy. Always willing to do it. Rich, on the other hand, he was a wizard. Right? And uh, what he, everything he touched turned to gold. Right? And uh, brilliant. But not always willing. Like, hey, can you help me with this? No response for a day or two. <laughs> it's like, sure, I'll do it. Um, but you know that's not going to happen for a while. You know? So when you think about it, when you, it's hard to trust either of these two right? because they have to be able and willing. They have to have the power and the integrity. And we turn to God. And when Abraham turned to God, what was he able to do to hope in him against hope was that we believe that God is both capable and in, he's infinite in his ability and he's infinite in his kindness to exercise that ability for our good. And he has proven that to us. And that's why we can hope in him again and again. And so for Abraham, he thought it through. He reasoned in his mind, weighed the evidence that stood for his faithful God. And he cho chose to have faith. One that was grounded in rational truth and a faith that saved him. And another thing we can learn from the nature of Abraham's faith was that it was based on facts, based on truth. He was fully convinced, verse 21, that God was able to do what he had promised. He did not waver. He did not, uh, he did not, he was unfazed, he was unmoved for someone who wasn't perfect, as we'll get into. He was insecure, fearful, because he was persuaded that God had almighty power. So he had to take that into consideration, the great power of God. Now, what exactly could Abraham possibly know about God? This is early on in the Old Testament. He didn't have the law. He certainly didn't have the Bible. 
What did he have to go off of in his very, very limited brief encounters with God? How was he able to have such faith? What exactly triggered that faith? This is very interesting here. In verse 17, we're told exactly what Abraham pondered and considered. What did he wrestle with in his mind exactly? Well, he believed that the God who promised him a child was, uh, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And let's pause there. He believed, as far as he was concerned and all that he knew about God, well, first of all, God created everything. God had created power. And he connected that with the idea that God also had resurrection power. The God who gives life to the dead, being that God just spoke a few words, let there be light, let there be this and that, and he spoke and it was, came into being and it was good. He connected that thought in his mind with the idea that because God was able to bring into existence out of which nothing existed, he could do anything. Meaning that he connected to his situation that my body's as good as dead, 100 years old, but because God created the world out of nothing in my personal situation here, if God could do that, why couldn't he do this? To bring life where life did not previously exist. And so he trusted, he wrestled with that. He sat there, probably stayed, he probably couldn't sleep at night trying to make that connection in his mind, that God was powerful. He was a creator God, and he was a God who had resurrection power. And even further, we can see that this is true because his promise to bring about nations out of Abraham's seed, which he had nothing, he had nothing to go off of, that where there were no children, that out of that where nothing existed would come out multitudes, offspring as abundant as the stars in the sand, out of which there will be many nations through which God would bless the world. Really, that challenges me really challenges me because I have an entire Bible in my hands right here. I studied in seminary to understand the meaning behind everything, understand theology. But how often can I make a connection like that which brings, uplifts me from times of despair, hopelessness, sadness, even depression, which once in a while I do struggle with? How often can I sit there and wrestle with the truth of God and come to the conclusion that God is worthy of my entire faith? I pray for that kind of faith, that I can too, against hope, believe, in hope, believe in God. He based his uh, faith on facts and truth. He believed that there must be no limit to God. The one who hung the sun and moon and scattered the stars like sand with both hands reason that it was ridiculous to think that their old age presents such a being with an obstacle. Obviously, the, uh, the application here is very simple. Um, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in studying the word, memorizing the word, uh, appropriating that into your life, holding each other accountable. Uh, one example of this I thought of is, uh, I think about our Sunday worship services too, where we... Uh, meet here week after week, and to me, I always treasure the first two minutes of our worship service, which happens to be the call to worship, and which also happens to be when there's only like 10 people in here. Right? <laughs> and it's true at over in our other building too, right? Usually it's just the presider. Uh, you can hear everything going on in the sanctuary from the stage. You know? um, but I value that part 
uh, of uh, the service because I don't know about you, but there are days I come to church on Sunday and uh, it's difficult to focus. Uh, it's hard to want to give your heart to God through the songs and even listen to a sermon because maybe you had a bad weekend. Maybe you didn't get enough sleep last night. Uh, or maybe uh, you had a disagreement with your family on the way here. And it's so easy to allow your mood or the kind of weekend you're having to dictate what kind of worship experience you're going to have throughout the day. But I value the call to worship because in those minutes, I'm, I'm forced to look away from that. And as we uh, responsively read those psalms, uh, I remember that the rest of that hour, the hour and a half we give to God, is based on facts about God and not whether or not I had a good cup of coffee in the morning or whether I was well-rested or whether I'm hungover or not on a Sunday morning, I can come in here and I can really rejoice in God because of something he's done, what he declares in his word. We read these psalms, it says God's love is matchless. It's immeasurable. His steadfast love extends as far as the east is from the west for you and I. And we can get away from the things that uh, we get worked up over. And we can build our worship, our faith on truths that don't change we realize how much our faith grows. We realize how much closer we draw, can draw near to God and feel closer to God when we forget about ourselves. Right? And knowing that for us today as New Testament Christians, we have far more than the ancient kings and prophets to focus on. We saw that God brought life where there was no life in the deadness of, of Sarah's womb, but one day God would raise his own son to life after dying on the cross for our sake. He brought life in the most, in the deadest of places in the tomb where Jesus lay, where there was spiritual deadness. And he burst forth from the grave to show once and for all that even death could not hold him back. And you and I today who believe in him in faith can live in the power of that resurrected life. And that, friends, is a reason to stand confident and bold before him, to trust in him even more. And thirdly here, how to live out our faith the application of the promises is very simple as we believe, we act, even when we fail. And especially when things get hard. And when we find ourselves perhaps in situations like Abraham, where it's so tempting to give up. I know we're there very, very often. Uh, because uh, for, for a lot of us... Um, uh, and rightly so. The, thing, the challenges we face and, and the problems we face in work, uh, in family, in school, and this, they're big deals for us because it really do, matters just uh, how well things go. It determines our future path and all those things. But that's precisely why we as Christians, we have something greater to stand on. Because uh, as much as tomorrow is not guaranteed, as much as our own success and even Good times, as though God does provide those things for us, and we should definitely thank God. It's not always guaranteed, but the promise of God is. Maybe God calls us in certain situations, even when it's difficult. Give of yourself. Give your time. Donate some of your money to a missionary. Donate a little bit more. Give more of your resources, your gifts to the church because there are needs. And for all the reasons why we don't want to, it's only the promise of God that's ever going to compel us to move away from self-centeredness, to want to give more. What other reason do we have? And what makes it even harder is when we do trust and we try to trust and we fail over and over again. 
You know, and this is another good thing to learn from uh, Gen- uh, Romans 4 here, is that our failures never nullify God's promises, right? How many times did Abraham fail? Multiple. Multiple, multiple times. In Genesis 12, he receives the promise. A few verses later, he's lying. He lies to Pharaoh in Egypt about who Sarah is, saying that she's his sister because he's afraid for his life, and the entire royalty ended up being afflicted by plagues. He almost got his family killed. Later in Genesis 15, he question, openly questions God's promise. Lord, what will you give me? I have nothing here. I remain childless. You've given me no offspring. He's trying to speed it up. In Genesis 16, he does try to speed it up. He takes matters into his own hands. He has a child with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, jumps the gun, has a child with her first. He causes all sorts of pain and misery. For God, why put up with that behavior any longer? But he does put up with it. And not only does he put up with it, he reaffirms a promise to remind him over and over again that everything that happens is all grace. The favor that God shows, it's all grace. Nothing that God gives us could we ever merit or deserve. We look at Jesus, we look at all that we receive that we could not earn on our own. And even the little faith we can gain in a God this great is all the abundant grace of God. If you're not a Christian here today, maybe your whole life you lived in a way where you feel like you've had to earn everything good in your life. It's all your hard work. And the idea and just frightens you that something could just be handed to you. Or maybe the approval and acceptance of your parents, your friends, peers. And I know for me, this is very true. Or very conditional upon your success, clean, acceptable behavior, proving yourself to be respectable in your whole life, maybe even up until now. It's just this unending quest to, to dispel that pressure just by measuring up, looking good to your employer, right? proving yourself to be worthy of your spouse's love, your children's respect, or your classmates, or wherever you go, even in ministry, your spiritual leaders, really wanting them to look at you with a favorable eye. But we learn today that that's not true of our faith. When we meet and encounter God, once we've tasted his goodness and love through the gospel of his son, that pressure is no longer there. It's all about God's promises. And yes, Abraham wasn't perfect, but by God's grace. His story is recorded by Paul in Romans 4. In verse 16, we see how personal it gets. It says, we share his faith. We share it. Not because we're as good as him. In fact, we're as bad as he is. Um, But that has been credited to us. And we see even further, there's so much to learn here. Verse 20, he grew strong. It's not just that he understood it, but verse 20, I have this underline here. It says, he grew strong. Meaning there was progress to be made in his faith. Why? Because he was strong? No, he's not strong in his faith. God gave him that strength. He grew strong in his faith. When? At the end of verse 20, as he gave Glory to God. You go strong in your faith. How? By trusting in God's promise. And even when you fail, believing that God's promise isn't nullified by your, any of your bad behavior, you're able to run back in faith over and over again as you what? Give glory to God. In good situations, glorify God. In failure, in pain, give glory to God. Especially in ministry, in rough times, in times of fruitfulness in times of barrenness, give glory to God. I'm wondering uh, for all of us here, maybe this is a challenge. What, how does that work out in your life? Are you quick to give glory to God even when the good things happen to you? Right? Let's say you, may, you do make progress in the goals you set for yourself, but you see that some of those things only came about by God's divine hand. 
right? Your family life is going well. You know, ministry is fruitful. Right? Think of a situation, even community group leaders. Let's say, I don't know, there's some weeks the, those meetings go well. Uh, some meetings, not so much. You know, um, times the meetings do go well. But sometimes the temptation is just sit there, oh, wow, I must be doing something right. You know, let's keep doing what we're doing. And I know I do that a lot too. In my ministry, it's like, this is working. Let's keep doing this. And I forget to give glory to God. And that's precisely where we get strengthened. We're remembering that God's fulfilling his promise by every good thing that's happening. So you say something good in community group, and everyone's like, wow. Oh, you are the man. <laughs> wow, good. Or you crack a joke. They actually laugh. <laughs> they think it's funny. Things are going well. You organize a dinner instead of nobody responding to you. People actually come. And they keep you company so you don't sit there by yourself. Good things happen, even situations like that. God, thank you. Every time my faith is strengthened, all glory be to you. And, and you do that over and over and over again. You get even more convinced of God's power and goodness. And we see in verse 22 uh, how it all comes together that God credited to Abraham all this as righteousness. Uh, it's like a banking term where there's a transfer of funds where he benefited, counted righteous before God. And we share in that. Keep reading on, verse 23, 24, and 25. He concludes, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. It was just, not just for Abraham. And we see why it's personal, verse 24. But for ours also. It will be counted to us, all of us here, you and I, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, which he was not able to see. But we read about, we believe, and it's an essential part of our faith, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. Friends, this makes a big difference in our lives. What kind of differences? I'll just list a few here. No more boasting, as we see in chapter 4. We can't boast in anything we've done. There's no reason for any of us to be arrogant about anything, especially spiritually. None of us who serve God, we can never, ever pat ourselves on the back for any good, even our own faith. All glory be to God. Number two, no fear, no cowering. If you sin, if you fall away from God, you struggle in your faith, you know, the, in this world, you commit a crime. You have to carry that misdemeanor on your record for the rest of your life. But without with our relationship with God, we believe that the blood of Jesus covers us. We can stand assured of our salvation even today. We can approach God with boldness and confidence. Number three, a, good, a great identity for Abraham, believing, moved him away from just being a nomad to become an heir, our heir of the land, father of the nations. And we too are included in that. We are part of the kingdom of God. We're part of his family. And lastly, finally, complete assurance, which I mentioned before, which is why we uh, read these words in the first place. This is amazing, amazing grace. And um, we can apply this to our devotional lives as well because this is more than just stuff for us to uh, hear about, but to apply to everything, to everything. Uh, I dug up an old journal entry, and uh, I remember years ago the senior pastor was going through um, a, a series on God's promises. And uh, I remember focusing on different um, uh, struggles I had in my life. This, I don't know how long ago this was, a while back. And... Um, I'm, I'll read you what just reminded me of how important it is to continue, at least it was for me, to remind myself to trust in God's promises. When I'm struggling to serve in ministry, uh, 
mainly teaching, preaching. I remember, Lord, you promised that your word would not return to you empty. It would accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. As God knows, teaching ministry is tough, tough to always do well. And so those three words, those words there I always start. Lord, you promised, you promised me, and I hold him to his word, that your word would not return to you empty. And that is why I respond to continue to serve confidently in your name. Even though it's not always clean or easy, let you achieve your purpose through each word I share. When I'm exhausted from life, I started like this. Lord, you promised, you promised me, holding him to his word, that you would give strength to the weary. And that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary. They will, their strength will be renewed. And that is why even though all these burdens and responsibilities can be exhausting, life can be exhausting, in the midst of all of it, I will press on, run forward on this day that you created because I believe your promise that you will strengthen me in my weakness. When I'm doubting if God is ever using me, which is a real struggle, because Lord, you promised, you promised that when I serve, give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in your name because I am your disciple, that will certainly not lose my reward, whether it's in heaven or on earth. So that completely takes away from the picture of how I feel about my own usefulness. It's all about God's reward. So I will not grow weary in serving. Longing to be used by God, I will serve your church with all my heart because there is a greater reward that you have promised me. It's all about promises. All about promises. And it just reminds me that in my devotional life, in my prayers, in my ministry, I need to talk about God's promises over and over again. Over and over again. And I think one warning we need to always remember is never to project onto God's promises our fleshly wishes, uh, misunderstanding, thinking God's promises things he's never promised us. Um, he's never promised us positive answers to every, every prayer we lift up. He's never promised us easy lives. He's never promised all of us earthly success. He certainly never promised us financial prosperity or good health every day of our life. And for uh, us to think that we're entitled to that is we're going to really, really stress ourselves out. He's promised us greater things. For example, his presence when we lack, when we fail, and when we're withering. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, meaning you love what he loves. His words have a grip on you. His promises are your delight. And you will gain the desires of your heart because you will desire what he promises. And that he will deliver over and over again as we have faith in him, as we believe in him. And I'll end with this, the promise we receive at the end of the Bible. Revelation 21, you can jot this down, 3 to 4, which is an amazing promise for all of us to live by, where he says, look up, as he was giving the, the revelation of the end of times to the Apostle John, says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will forever be with them. He, they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things, the old 
way of life has passed away. And that's not something we often think about, but that is the promise we all live by. We have to live by. Because it's quite depressing to think that the world we live in is the one we're going to live in forever. This world filled with pain, murder, crime, the threat of war and fear. But what a promise to hope in. That one day we will be with God and he will dwell with us forever. All the fear of death will pass away. And when your heart aligns with this promise, when this promise latches onto you, a couple of things happen. First of all, though the pain and loss in this earthly life will be, still be real, we live with the hope that none of it will last forever. And when Christ does return one day to fulfill these wonderful promises, we will receive what our hearts have always yearned for and ate for all our earthly lives. And our joy will be Abundant. When you want something so badly and you receive it, your joy overflows. When you want God, when you want what he promises, when you live for it, when you're driven by it, and we believe it will all come to pass one day. You know, every, every step we take along the way, maybe as difficult as it is, we can live believing that the best is yet to come. The very best is yet to come. Every time we stumble, we can run back again and again and again. You know, anytime we uh, set out to accomplish goals, run a race, or uh, do anything uh, in our lives, uh, it comes with shortcomings. Uh, but we can rise uh, every single time. And God's promises always brings us back over and over again. So let's remember that. Remember that the one who took the ultimate fall on our behalf on the cross says, I have raised you for your justification. You can be sure uh, that an almighty, faithful God who is both able and willing will work for your good until the very end. Friends, will you trust in him today? Friends, will you be willing today to hope against all hope? Would you bow as we uh, spend a few minutes in prayer before we end our time?